Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. We're excited to be back with you. It's been a little bit of a break over the holiday, but we're excited now to be back with you and with a tremendous athlete in the adaptive sports arena. Candace Cable won 84 marathons, nine-time Paralympian in three different sports, alpine skiing, Nordic skiing, wheelchair racing, won 12 medals in the Paralympics. Now, Candace, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Chris. You're welcome. Now, one of the questions that I have, you started so early on in, in wheelchair racing. I mean, what was it like? I mean, because I look at some of these old photos and the image that comes to mind for me is like somebody decided that they were going to race like the family, the family station wagon and turned the family station wagon into a hot rod. When you guys first started like racing these, these 50 pound hospital wheelchairs and stuff, what was, what was it like when you first started racing a wheelchair? Cause you were this, your accident was in 75, right? So you were there at the beginning. Yeah. So I, first I want to say, um, hi everybody. Um, and I wanted to do like a, just a little audio description of what I look like in case we have anybody who has, you know, low vision or they're blind and they're trying to catch this on Facebook. And so I'm a white woman. I have dark hair. I have uh, dark glasses on, not sunglasses, but dark rim glasses. I'm wearing a black turtleneck sweater and I'm sitting in my favorite chair that has a couple blankets over the backside, just in case I get cold. And I, um, I'm zooming in or Facebook in from uh, Tongva land, which, uh, is occupied right now, you know, because it's, you know, indigenous lands, it's Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles, California. And my pronouns are she and her. And, uh, and you know, some of these things that I'm talking about right now are so new to me uh, because, you know, we're shifting and changing like things do. And as you pointed out, uh, wheelchair racing really shifted and changed quite a bit, right? The station wagon, right? Um, <laughs> 1975, yeah, I had a spinal cord injury at the age of 21. And prior to that, I had no background in sports, competitive sports whatsoever. I didn't really like doing any kind of competitive sports. I loved the outdoors. I surfed, I hiked. My family was a camping family. We loved uh, going on that two-week vacation down to Mexico because I, I was a Southern California girl. All, all my life. And, and so when I had my spinal cord injury, I had never really seen anybody with a disability before that I recognized. And I started to go to Long Beach State University and they had disabled student services. And there is where I met my people and my community. And I was a majorly social person before and I wanted to hang out with these people and they were doing some sports. And a few of them were just being invented. One was wheelchair tennis, which I tried and I didn't like chasing that little ball around at all. 
And the other one was wheelchair racing, which was being invented. And people were racing in their 50 pounds stainless steel Everest and Jennings wheelchairs, cutting things off, you know, welding things on, trying to make smaller hand rims. And I just really loved the idea of being in a road race, a 5K that non-disabled people were in and I was in, and we all went across the same start line and we all did the same course. And then we all went across the same finish line. And it helped me feel like I was back in the world because like I said, I'd never seen anyone use a wheelchair before or with a disability or even recognized it. So I felt pretty isolated and alone. And once I found my community and my people, I was like, oh, okay, I can hang out with these people. And they were doing sports. And for me, I was fortunate to be a natural with that piece, but I think there was a bigger piece to it for me was that connectedness, feeling like I was back in the world and connected and how do I go forward from that? So that's really how it started. It's interesting that you, st so you started with 5Ks, is that what you were talking about a 5K? Are those the distances that you started with and just sort of jumped into a local road race or how did it work? Did you start with shorter distances that people say, okay, we could do a hundred meters or, cause there was all, there are all sorts of distances that you could raise. How did, how did the first competition work or how did the first, how did the first day of training work? Well, for me, the first bit of really any kind of physical activity that had a purpose to it, you know, be, beyond pleasure was, uh, was swimming. I started to swim to get a little bit stronger. And I also liked swimming because people didn't know I used a wheelchair. I was still trying to hide it. I was, you know, you can't really hide your wheelchair, but once you're out of it, if you're in the water swimming, nobody really knows. And uh, I was still really caught up in the bias that society has around disability, that it's a bad thing. And as we all know now, it's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's a human life experience we're all going to have. So once I kind of caught on to that and I met my other pals that were using chairs and, you know, or were blind or had an amputation, they were running, you know, running and things. And so one was going around the track. Uh, and then the second thing was there was a group of people that were really interested in pursuing the events that were happening in running in the road races because that looked and I think for a lot of the people that were doing it, you know, uh, say Jim Knob, for example, they were already involved in track and field. So they had some basis of what to expect and what they wanted to be a part of. But yeah, so first it was swimming, then going around a track and someone saying, hey, you know, I think you could be pretty good at this. And then just following my peers into the next thing that they were trying to do. And that was road races. And I believe the very first one I was a part of was at Griffith Park. It was a 5K. That's why I called it a 5K. I even have a picture of it. And uh, I was in a Dean Barrett chair that was, uh, you know, just a a modification off of the stainless steel Everest and Jennings, but it was a frame that was built with uh, little eight inch wheels in the front and, uh, and the, uh, the wheels in the back with the smaller push ring. 
So. And the ENJ chair that you're talking about is, is the one that people will see in the hospital. Like if you go into the hospital, this is the 50 pound stainless steel with sort of kind of like a leather, fake leather looking uh, upholstery seat. And, you know, I assume that you got rid of like the, the uh, armrests. Uh, you didn't get rid of, you couldn't get rid of the, the handles, right? Didn't you, you still had to have the handles on the back in right. order to there's qualify? A, yeah, there's rules, right? There were rules and like everything, or at least you hope everything evolves that uh, in the beginning, there were rules. You had to have, you had to have the push handles still on. You had to have a strap behind your feet, which, you know, for someone who's a double amputee, what's the point, right? Well, they had to have a footrest too, right? The double amputees had to have a footrest, even though they had no feet. Yes. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things about sport is that there's rules and there's regulations on when it comes to equipment, what you can compete in. And so these were the things. And, and as we progressed and the rules changed, I mean, I was a part of a group that started to push for rule changes so that we could use pieces of equipment that we were inventing. So one uh, at one instance was, I was at a track meet in, uh, and you, you'll know this, and it's Stoke Mandeville, England, which was one of our original track meets that we were all taking part in. And we had- well, where the Paralympics started too, Stoke Mandeville yeah. back in 48. It is, yeah, and that's a great point. Thanks for saying that, that, you know, it is the birth of games for people with disabilities. and it was started off there in 1948. So here we were back in the eighties there and we, a group of people had in Southern California and on the East coast had started playing with this device to steer the front end of the wheelchair so that we could compensate and we call them compensators, compensate for the roundness of the road. So when we were road racing and we we're in the street our chairs always wanted to go down to the the low side, right? To the right. Yeah, yeah always down Off to the, the road. Yeah. So we were always working hard to try to keep it like that. And we invented these spring things with tie rods down the front wheels so that we could control where those front wheels went. So if we could point the front wheel in one direction opposite of the round down the hill, then we could go straight. It was awesome. And we wanted to use it on the track to be able to take those corners fully with full force and not just really be working our outside arms trying to get around. And it wasn't a rule yet that we could use it. So I asked my coach that while we were at Stoke Mandeville and I said, I wanna use my steering. I wanna show how it works. I know I'm gonna get disqualified, but I wanna show how it works so that we can get this rule changed because it's gonna make a better race. And it's gonna be able to start to combine the classes, which would be ideal because we could create more validity within our sport with less classes, with people competing against each other. And that's where the open division came from that we have. So I did it, I got disqualified. Um, there was a lot of hoopla that happened, but the next year they changed the rule. So, that was exciting, you know, to be a part of something like that. Where were you, what was your position in the sport? Were you one of the better people in the sport at that time that they really had to take notice of you? 
Yes. Uh, yeah. I was one of the top players in wheelchair racing for women at that time uh, on the track and on the road. So I was, you know, probably, uh, I was going to say that if I think back on it, I probably did win that race, uh, but I was disqualified. So um, yeah, but it, it really pushed the sport and that's, you know, what we do as athletes. And I, I know you've done it too in your sports and um, we have to do that. We have to constantly do that. Just like we have to push everything else. We have to push ourselves a little bit forward. We have to push the sports forward so that they're more equitable and um, they create more opportunity for people. How, how did this work in a personal sense? I mean, you said that you had never really been an outdoors person, but you'd never really been an athlete. And I, I think I remember you talking, you, you, were, you were a card dealer at one point, weren't you? Like dealing in, in Reno, I, I do, I, I think I remember reading something that might have said that you actually had forged your, your identification because you were too young to- Well, you know, you have some of it right. I was a blackjack dealer in South Lake Tahoe at the time of my spinal cord injury. I was in a car accident that resulted in the spinal cord injury. And uh, yeah, I was really, a, you know, I was a, a young woman that was beginning to look at what were some of her options. I didn't have an option to go to college after um, graduating from high school. So I went right to work and I did a variety of jobs. And so this was part of my evolution of work. And a couple of friends had said they were gonna move to South Lake Tahoe and I had never been there. So I went with them and and we were living up in South Lake Tahoe and I was working as a blackjack dealer when I, when I had my spinal cord injury. So I was in the hospital there. And uh, here's, a little, here's a little piece for you that I think you'll enjoy. Was this like long fingernails and stuff like that too? Like oh yeah, well, you know, to be a blackjack dealer, you have to have a little bit of flair. And, uh, and, and because it's a white shirt with a black skirt. I mean, there's not much going on there. So, you know, I had, I had some long fingernails, which are not even close to what we see nowadays. It, you know, maybe uh, a quarter inch at the most. Uh, Maybe half, like, oh, I don't know, but they were red. I kept them red because they looked amazing against the green felt. And uh, yeah, and I would wear tight skirts and, um, you know, a higher platform shoes because platform shoes in mid seventies were all the rage. And uh, yeah, that it was, uh, I love dancing. It was, you know, part of my life. Uh, after my spinal cord injury and being in the hospital at Bart Memorial Hospital in South Lake Tahoe, my three surgeons, and uh, you recognize a name here, uh, a Dr. Watson, a Dr. Fry, and a Dr. Stedman, uh, were my spinal cord injury doctors that rebuilt the vertebrae in my back from, with some bone from my hip. And, and Dr. Stedman and I have uh, connected in a variety of times after that, he said I was probably his first and only spinal cord injury he ever worked on because he, we know he is now a, a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon for the U.S. ski team, and he's got an amazing clinic in Colorado. But uh, to have that kind of connection later on when I was a ski racer was really, really fun. Um, yeah, and then six months in the hospital in rehabilitation. Six months. Yeah, wow. six months. In 1975, we were in the hospital for six months. 
I was really institutionalized by then. It was a very scary for me to, to be uh, back out in the world and not see anyone at all like me and for nothing to be accessible. You know, there were no curb cuts then. There, was, there was, were no laws that were in place saying that these kind of things had to be in place. Those were all gonna be fought for and in wonderful ways. I mean, we had the 504 sit-in that happened in San Francisco in 1977 to get the Rehabilitation Act signed. And, uh, and I just wanna- Duty human and, and that kind of stuff. That's right. And I wanna, I just wanna, um, I just wanna let your, your viewers think about going to YouTube and look up drunk history, D-R-U-N-K history 504, and you will see an episode that they created on that sit-in. And uh, I pitched that to the creators of Drunk History because uh, my sister, a little proud moment here, is an Emmy award-winning costume supervisor. And at the time she was working on the show and I am a major fangirl of hers. So I'm constantly on set whenever I can be to watch her work and you know check out what's going on. And I was on set one day and I pitched the idea to them and they said, well, I don't know, I don't know. We kept pushing, we kept pushing and finally it got made. And it is a great historical rendition of the 504 sit-in. And I know teachers that use it. I know people at the State Department that use it now to teach about. So um, we have a history in this country uh, of laws that have been created that are creating access. But in 1975, we just didn't have that stuff. So. You know, being able to find a community that I fit into and, and get involved in sports really helped me rebuild my self-esteem and create sense of accomplishment in me. And then also begin to give me a trajectory of what direction I could go in and what kind of advocacy I could, could create to change the way the world was uh, to the world that I want it to be. When you were in the hospital, did you feel like you were effectively just going to be institutionalized, that that, that, that was going to be your life moving forward? Because you were what, you were 21 years old when you had your accident? Right, I was 21 years old and you know, I didn't have any idea of what my life was going to be. I was in a very deep denial about my spinal cord injury. I really wanted it to go away. so. I had a year of, of drug and, um, and isolation use that I, I, just, I just went down a big dark rabbit hole that I was having trouble getting out of. I didn't wanna feel anything because I was physically having a lot of pain. I had a lot of neuropathic pain, which in uh, 2000, uh, let's see, when did I have this done? Oh, uh, in 2001, actually, yeah, 2001, just before our 2002 uh, Paralympic Games, I had a surgery that is called the dorsal root entry zone. And they go in and they burn nerves on the spinal cord to alleviate neuropathic pain. And it was successful for me. But from 1975 to 2001, I had this physical pain uh, as well as the emotional pain of not knowing how to deal with it. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the coping skills of how to deal with really beginning to transform myself of what is my new image of how I can be. 
And so I had, I just had no real guidance in that. And I started using drugs because I just didn't want to feel anything. And about a year into it, about one morning I woke up and I said, I don't want to do this anymore with my life. And I went straight to my mother and I said, mom, I'm a drug addict and I need help. And she said, we're going to get you help. And I enrolled into a live-in program that I was in psychiatric care as well as group therapy uh, seven days a week, getting all kinds of different therapy to re rebuild my skills and my thought processes of how I could deal with this and, and build a new toolkit is really, I think the best way to, to say that. And, and that's how I ended up going to university and meeting people. That it's interesting one that you were the one who effectively created your own intervention mm -hmm. that you said, I need my, I need help because it doesn't happen oftentimes that way that you were the one who, who went to your mother and said, I need help. What were the things, how did you, how did you rebuild? What did you need to rebuild? I mean, your, your image of yourself, I assume, but your self-esteem, your, how, how did you go about building those things that then you could start a new life? Yes, that's a great question. Thank you, because it's multi-layered. It really is. It's, you know, first it was getting in a program that I had professionals that were teaching me new ways to cope, as well as, you know, beginning to peel off some of the layers of, you know, whatever kind of ideas I had about what it was to be a person in the world that weren't correct. And uh, let me, you know, let me use an example of, you know, I grew up a kid who was, we were middle-class, I'm white. I had all kinds of privilege to be having opportunities and access to things. We didn't have a lot of money, but I never was told there was anything that I couldn't do. And when someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, I want to be everything. You know, I just want to do it all. And, uh, and I still have that mindset. But after my accident, I immediately felt like my life was over and that I didn't know what to do. And there was no place for me. Where did that come from? You know, when I grew up as a person thinking I had every opportunity available to me, well, it's a societal overlay that tells us that certain people, certain bodies are valuable and certain ones are not. Right. And I completely absorbed that without even knowing it. So in therapy, they were able to peel back some of those layers of low self-esteem of which I had no idea I had and build that back up. So that was the first part, professional help. The second part was finding a community that I felt a part of, you know, the belonging piece, right? Like being able to be a part of something and, and then balance ideas off of them. You know, I would always ask my peers, how do you do this? Or how do you transfer like that? And when I say transfer, I mean, how do you get in and out of your wheelchair? Because we all kind of do it a little bit different. Like we have some things that are similar, us wheelchair users, but there's quite a bit that's different. You know, a hand over here or, a, you know, place a foot this way. And then I think the, the third thing that I want to say is I... I found a sense of purpose for myself. And, and that came 
from my community, from my therapy. And it came from the things that I was doing. So I started to realize that with my wheelchair racing, because that was the first sport I was involved with, I had an opportunity to actually shift perspective about what people thought disability was and wasn't. And sport was such a great way to do it because it really messed with people's minds when you said, oh, I'm an athlete. And they're like, yeah, you would use a wheelchair? How could you be an athlete? And that is an opportunity to flip the script. And that really became my purpose. And I started to develop education pieces on teaching about how to understand disability. You know, one is it's a human life experience we're all going to have, but that the way we talk about it matters, the way we refer to it matters, the way we create access matters. If we create a back door always for someone who uses a wheelchair to get into a building because there's steps in the front, nah, that's not how we want it. We really want it side by side. We want, we want the lift to be right next to the stairs. We want those things side by side so we see each other, right, to be present. So I think those three things were we're really instrumental in, in creating, you know, what I always love to call my toolkit and I'm always adding to it. Well, you had the purpose and and you had the vehicle in some ways too, right? Like the, the racing was your vehicle to be able to affect a change. And we can look at it right now and say, you know, world record for a marathon. I mean, I think Heinz Fry had what is 120 or whatever, you know, so it's, 40 minutes faster than the fastest. I mean, we, we can talk about Boston, you know, like a 118 or something, but at the same time, like it, it, it's so much faster that there's a, there's a lot of respect that comes with that speed that it's the same sport to a certain extent, but it's a different sport. But back then that wasn't the case back then you're pushing around in these 50 pound wheelchairs. You probably have no idea what that original 5k what your time was for that original 5k was do you oh well for uh it was well over an hour and i know i could probably find you know some kind of a, a race bib or something that is in my in my boxes of archives that uh had something written on it because i definitely was a saver i think uh, uh thank goodness i'm not a major hoarder uh but with my athletic career i did save quite a bit of stuff you know the 50 pound Everson Jennings wheelchairs didn't last that long. Uh, we were we were already cutting things down. You know, there was a, I was so lucky. I was just so lucky to be a part of the Southern California group. We created this wonderful little racing club as well as sport club called the Southern California Flyers. And I, you know, there were people in it that like Jeff Minnebreaker who, and uh, Mary Bogle who was Mary Wilson back then, and Eric Walls who, and Brad Parks that were got together and started building the first lightweight wheelchairs, the Quadra. And that was gonna be an everyday chair, right? Not a racing chair or a athletic piece of equipment, but just an everyday chair, but we could move around in them doing sports. And that's really how we began to build our racing chairs off of, you know, we went from four wheels to three wheels because three wheels ended up being so much more stable than four wheels. And you but know- that took a long time to get to three wheels. I mean, you went from middle seventies to like up almost until 1990, really, right? Before, well, actually, before everybody was, was in a three wheeler. In the mid eighties, we were playing with three wheels. 
we you're were playing with three wheels, wheels right? Playing with three wheels. We were pushing it hard. We were pushing it on the road way before we were able to do anything on the track because of the, the rules and the requirements on the track. We made up the rules for the road. Uh, I, I was a part of a couple of people that started the International Wheelchair Road Racers Club. And with that club, we went around and met with race directors and shared with them our guidelines for race directors on how to incorporate a wheelchair division into a running race. And we made it really clear from the very beginning that we weren't competing against the runners. We would have our own division and our times would be separate from the runners, but that we would race on the same courses and that we should start ahead of the runners, that that would be ideal. And we gave timeframes for that. We gave them ideas for prize money. We gave them ideas for media. There was a group of us that traveled all over this country. I mean, we were doing marathons back to back. Like on Saturday, we did a marathon and we did a marathon on Sunday. We traveled in this pack all over this country, really promoting the wheelchair division in road races and giving the race directors what they needed. And that was that, was that first taste of advocacy that I had that really taught me how I could alter and change perception, not just with image that we were already doing with our racing, but also with helping, you know, being able to help race directors and how to integrate us into their divisions because they were afraid of us at first. And we didn't want that at all. We didn't want people to be afraid of us. We wanted them to embrace us. And eventually road racing did. And I think that's, that's when we started to see some of those real big adjustments start to happen on the track. They came from road racing. Were, what were their worries? I mean, it's the liability. They're worried that you're going to get hurt. They're worried that you're going to hurt somebody else. Is that Were those the issues when you were trying to get into road races? Well, it was the misperception that were about people with disabilities being fragile little teacups that, you know, we're going to shatter and break any second. You know, that was that first misconception. You know, that bias that exists out there, the ableism that exists that says that, you know, people with disabilities, you know, are, you know, they're kind of scary and freaky and we don't want to have them around. And we were shattering those ideas right and left with what we were doing. Yeah, I think the other was that we might crash, of which we did in Boston. And we really had to defend ourselves in the Boston race in the early 80s when there was the big wheelchair crash right at the start. And honestly, I have to say, I was so happy, and I'm really sorry to say I was happy, that the runners actually fell down at the start too, so that we could use that as an example that people fall in sport. That's what we do. We fall and we get back up. That's what we do. You know, So don't try to stop our divisions from happening because you're afraid we're going to fall. We're going to fall, just like the runners fell, and we're going to get back up and we're going to finish. So yeah, they uh, forgot to drop the start line and there was a rope at the time and it tripped up a bunch of runners. So we fell and we all kind of gathered ourselves and got back up and finished. And then the runners fell. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a battle for um, staying on the road, but we were able to, you know, plead our can case. You describe, can you describe that crash? Cause that, that was a pretty, a pretty phenomenal crash. And then the start of Boston as well, because most people probably don't know what the start of the race is like. Yes, yeah, so the start of the race at Boston Marathon has traditionally been up on a hill. 
So it's a downhill start, which means within, you know, 30 seconds, you're going from zero to 20 miles an hour. You know, if you, you're going to let it fly. And it was a wet day. And one of the racers just slid a little bit, tilted up on two wheels because we were still on four wheels then and fell over and started sliding and people tried to avoid and they were sliding and then running into each other. And it was just all kinds of wheelchairs crashing all over the place. I thought I was making it through. And then someone came from the side and took me out. Um, my tire fell off. I got some help getting my tire back on, airing it up because we carry air with us, little CO2 cartridges. And I ended up finishing the race and winning the race, um, finding my way back to the, to, the, um, to the finish line. But I have to say one of the things that with that, that crash, it was quite scary. And I refused to think about it throughout the entire two plus hours that I was racing. And I crossed the finish line and burst into tears because it was traumatizing. It was so traumatizing, but it also taught me that I have the power to be able to transcend moments like that and pick myself up and move forward. And uh, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a moment that could have ended wheelchair racing and road racing relationship, but it didn't. And it didn't because uh, I think cooler heads prevailed and they also realized that, yeah, this is a sport. People fall down and they get back up. And there were accommodations that were made as well, right? So it was a controlled start for what, like 20, 20 years or more. I mean, it basically up until just recently, it, it's no longer a controlled start, which meant that I think for the first mile, the wheelchairs were not allowed to go over 15 miles an hour, which, which in some ways was actually scarier to yes. everybody trying to go this slowly because I think it was nine people across and you were supposed to stay in formation effectively, people in front of you, people behind you. And now with the, with the chairs, I think they're, they're much more comfortable and they feel like, okay, you can go and it's, it's fast too, right? I mean, it's it's over, it's over thirty miles an hour now well, yes. as Boston, a max. Boston is a point-to-point -point course, and it falls in the course. Like you lose elevation in in Boston's in the Boston race. So it's a fast course. Any kind of time that we see that comes out of Boston is an extraordinarily fast course because there's two kinds of courses. There's point-to-point -point where you start in one place, you end another place. And then there's out and back. So out and back is a much more true course because whatever you go down, you got to go back up to get to where you're going. So, so but um, with the with the Boston and the controlled start, we started to use brakes, and that made it a little bit easier to have that controlled start. And once we had our brakes on, we just had to be careful not to hold them too tight because you could heat up a rim and and uh, blow a tire. Yeah, or yeah, that front tire, because it's now with the three-wheeler, you're on the, just the front tire. And if you lock up that front brake, that little tire on the front, you blow through that so quickly and it pops. And then then you're usually in big trouble. You can go on the flat tire in the front. Yeah. When was your first marathon? Did you do uh, it really early on? It was 1980 was Orange Bowl Marathon. 
Okay. Yeah. So that was your first marathon. What what was it like thinking about doing a marathon? Was it a big deal? Did you ever did you ever think in your life that you were going to do a marathon, let alone do one Saturday and Sunday? Uh, yeah. So I have to say that I um I have to say this in all honesty that if I didn't use a wheelchair for mobility and become a wheelchair racer, I would have never been a runner. Uh, it just looked so painful. I watched these runners come across and I think, oh, that does not look comfortable. I think I would have been a cyclist if I'd gotten involved in competitive sport as a non-disabled person. But uh, the idea of doing a marathon, well, again, I was in community and all my friends were doing it and I wanted to be with my friends. And honestly, I was I was, uh, I was so naive. I was just so naive about not just the distance. Like I kind of understood the distance, 26.2 miles, but not really how long I was gonna be out there. But I had this idea and this is, uh, you know, an embarrassing story, but uh, you learn- Those are the best ones. You learn, right? I thought, well, I'm going to be out there for two or three hours. I mean, well, actually three hours. It was three hours and three hours. I'm going to get a little sun. I think I'll wear a tube top. And I wore a tube top to do that first marathon. And it was push, push, pull it up, push, push, pull it up. I think I probably could have been much faster had I not wore that tube top. And I actually have a photograph to document my beauteous look that I had going with my tube top and my my Adidas silky sweats on and my Vans tennis shoes. I was I was styling out there, but uh, but really it was the community that really lifted me up throughout the length of that event and inspired me to do more because that's what my friends were doing. And I wanted to be with my friends. And I'd also already discovered that I had an opportunity to educate. And I really didn't want anyone else to feel that isolation that I felt in the beginning after my spinal cord injury when I was using a wheelchair and I felt so left out of everything. It was so debilitating on so many levels until I was able to create those pieces that were able to bring me that, you know, that focus, you know, that focus to move forward and then, and find joy again. Cause I had always been a real joyous person before. And that year and a half, the six months in the hospital. And then that year after the hospital, I was just so dark and, and I, I wanted to honor my darkness, but I also wanted to find my joy again. And I was super grateful for learning about therapy because my mom was a huge proponent of therapy while we were growing up. And so that may have been the catalyst that really helped me wake up to that moment of, I don't wanna do this anymore with my life, I need help. And also having a family that loved me unconditionally. They were always there for me, even when they didn't know what to do, they were still like, got this you know we're here we're gonna hold you <laughs> well that's the hardest part because they don't know what to do right there's only so much they can do they can be there for support and the great peer pressure that you're talking about this this chat comes out of our educational program our school program 
And we have what we call our four S's of resilience. And one of the S's is about support. And the question really is, and th these are questions we can ask ourselves when we're in a difficult situation. Am I alone or am I part of a team? And for you, you, you really did feel alone because you didn't, know, you didn't know how to join that team. You still had your family, but they didn't necessarily know anything about wheelchairs, you know, about life in wheelchair because you, didn't, you hadn't seen anybody in a wheelchair. And, and a lot of the sports were starting back then. Like you were, you were there on the ground level as far as racing was concerned and basketball and tennis and a variety of other sports that really started relatively easily. You didn't have to add all that much. Swimming is another sport where you didn't have to, you didn't have to go and create a ski. Like the mono ski was something that took, took a whole lot more technology as opposed to, well, you had a race, you had a wheelchair and this person has a wheelchair we have a line here and we'll put a line down there and uh, let's, let's see how it works. Like go as fast as you can. This is a race. It's a relatively, a relatively easy situation. What do you tell people now? Because you've had so much experience, you've gone through this experience. What do you tell people who are going through this experience at the, when they're at the beginning? How do you help them to take that first step? When I have an opportunity to spend time with people and I, I do it as often as I possibly can. And when I spend time with kids with disabilities, I, you know, I tell them that, you know, one, you have to take responsibility for what your next action is going to be. And it gets better. It always gets better. And don't believe, don't believe the lies. You know, don't believe the old bias and the stereotypes and the stigma that says disability is broken because disability is becoming an identity, right? Like we are shifting, we are shifting what the word means now. You know, we are beginning to redefine it and own it as disabled people because we, we really have to because non-disabled people created that definition and, and put it out there. I mean, when we think about the evolution of words and, and of our community, in the beginning, we were called cripples. And after that, it was handicapped. And now it's disabled. So it keeps evolving. And I, I really encourage people to think about what it is that they want to do, you know, whether it's sports, I find sports a really great way to stay healthy and fit, which was helpful for me in the beginning. Uh, I don't want to be competitive anymore. I, you know, I feel like I, I moved through that door and and I, I got that done. But well, I'm 27 years of it. You moved through that door. You were you were in and out of that door for a long time. Yeah. Well, yes, and I I loved it so much. I strung it out as far as I could with three different sports. I actively looked for a four sport I was thinking hmm, maybe I could do something else but I really wanted to start teaching I wanted to bring forward the education program about understanding disability and teaching kids and adults all the different pieces that they think are um, scary or they don't understand I might make a mistake when I talk to a person who's disabled what do I do I wanted to help alleviate those fears and really give them tools to be able to interact with 
people not like them. Because one of the pieces of building a full society is everybody has to be a part of it, right? And people with disabilities have consistently throughout time been left out. I mean, if you think about, if you think about disability, really before the mid 20th century, we were locked away. We didn't come out until after the 1950s, 1960s. I mean, when we think about 1948, the rehabilitation hospital in Stoke Mandeville, that was World War II veterans that were being rehabilitated after war with sport, right? So- Well, and 80% of them were not expected to live beyond three years, right? So, mm -hmm. so there was a fundamental shift. Now, in your day, because you know, it's, it's easy to look at the disability side, I would imagine that there are other things that occur in your day that are more difficult than getting around. Is that true? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, lately during COVID, I've not left my apartment much, so I know this place <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> well, then you then you suddenly you're you're in the technology. You're getting onto you're getting onto Zoom calls. You're doing you're yeah. doing a variety of things that are that are new and and are different. And I think you know I guess this is a bit of a leading question, but in but in the sense. What I'm trying to get to is the fact that that you learned to do this. You learned it was really difficult in the beginning to figure out how to get around, to figure out how to do transfers, to figure out how to go fast in your racing chair. But but I mean, I know there I have way more challenges on a daily, you know, like if it's even if it's a difficult phone call or something like that, they're like, okay, I've got to make that phone call. I've got to, I don't want to make that phone call, but I've got to make that phone call. That that is not you know that that versus like going for a fifty mile bike ride like oftentimes I'm like okay yeah fifty mile bike ride sounds like a whole lot better deal than, than, than this really hard phone call right? right so it's changing that perspective and I think it's in some ways it's the it's the common experience that it's you, our lives aren't necessarily any more difficult than somebody else's life. It's just difficult in a different way. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I see. I see where you're going with this, and uh, I would say, yeah, everybody has difficulties. You know, um, each and every one of us have have different things that we don't want to do <laughs> that are, are are challenging, and and we figure out ways to to get them done. I would say that outside of navigating the physical world, when I think about challenges that I have, it's the everyday bias that is bestowed upon me because I have a, a very visible disability, right? People see my wheelchair, they kind of know what's going on here. Like my identifying mark isn't hidden and, and I can't hide it and I have to have it out front. So people have assumptions that they make about disabled people. One is we're not very smart. And so when I come into a, a meeting, you know, with uh, uh, making a proposal about some consultation that I think that I would be very good at, the expectations for me are quite low already by society. And so oftentimes in a job interview, they are also 
And there's also another challenge that comes forward is that oftentimes employers find it hard to fathom what kind of accommodations they think they would be able to make to make sure that I could work in that environment rather than ask me or even consult the wonderful resources that are online now about job accommodations. They choose not to hire someone with a physical disability or with a even with a um, someone who is deaf, who would need someone who is a interpreter to work with them, depending on what kind of work they were doing. They choose not to do that because they look at that as difficult. When in reality, it's a plus for everybody in that office. It's a real plus. And so, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I feel a little more challenged by is how do I flip that script again so that they understand that actually this is way more easy than you think it is because you're buying into the old bias. You're buying in the old stereotypes and, and just a little bit of education is going to help you understand that you have a lot of resources that you can tap into to be able to create a more accommodating workplace. So those are probably some of the ways that uh, I get tired of dealing with. And uh, I find that level of exhaustion where you go, oh, do I have to do this again? When you were talking about your phone call, that's that's me thinking about, oh, do I have to do this? To educate from the beginning. To educate people again, you know, and, and it's really one of the reasons why I created the program that I created is that, hey, why don't you just bring me in? Let me educate you off the top here. And then you're going to go forward and have all of this stuff already. And you're going to get it done right. And, you know, because we are the last, we really are the last, uh, the last outpost in diversity, inclusion, and equity is disability, really getting disability involved in all of that. You know, we see people of color, women, LGBTQ communities more and more. We've seen more and more opportunities for them to be included in all aspects. And people with disability are still in that outpost where there's a lot of fear involved with it. And, uh, and that's one of the things I, when I work with kids and I've got a couple of kids I'm working with now that I encourage them to speak up always for what their needs are. You know, when you learn early on how to speak up, then um, as you get older, you won't get so shy. Was it a challenge for you? Because you're saying that the business environment is, is an ongoing challenge. Mm-hmm. And was it a big challenge for you to have left sport? Because in some ways you, you, you left the hospital, that was a challenge. Sport was the thing that gave you your purpose. And then leaving being a world-class athlete, because I mean, you, were, you were in for 27 years, but you were also, you were really successful throughout the whole time. And so, so leaving that identity, is that, is that something that continue, that was a challenge when you left it? And does it continue to be a challenge or how are you addressing it? That definitely was a challenge to leave. I thought I was ready and I left, I left by choice. I, you know, I chose, I was, you know, I want to do some, again, it's kind of like when I woke up the first time where I said, I want to do something else with my life. This is what I said there was, I want to do something else with my life. I want to really begin to put more effort into education and find ways that I can advocate on a, on a bigger scale. And I thought I was ready in the beginning. And I started about a year into it, I started to have this 
it was a depression. I, it's the only way I can really be able to think a about depression? it. Depression? Is that yeah, what you said? I started okay. to, to feel depressed about missing and who am missing sport and then who am I without it? And so I got myself into therapy. I jumped back into therapy and started to talk about what my feelings were. And, and they helped me, because uh, I had a couple of therapists I was working with, they helped me understand I had a whole lot of skills that I wasn't looking at as life skills that I could use in work and business that I had like developed. Oh, um, one goal setting, mm -hmm. you know, with sport, I was setting goals all the time. You know, I, I set a goal for this place and then, and I'd set another goal beyond it once I achieved it. And then I would evaluate it, right? I had evaluating skills. I had management skills. I had these different skills that I had already created, but I hadn't looked at them as something that would work in business. And they helped me redefine that. And once I started to do that, I, I began to understand that I actually had quite a bit of skill that I didn't think I had. And I was wanting to fall back into sport because it felt comfortable. And I think that's another piece that I started to realize I needed to you know, make peace with in my life is that I was going to be comfortable, uncomfortable doing new things. And that's okay. You know, we have to get uncomfortable and then we undo some of these things. We build new stuff up and we get comfortable with it and we move forward. It's all about life and change, right? That's what it's all about. Embracing that sense of, of being uncomfortable because as we get older, we feel like we should know what we're doing, right? <laughs> that's the... That, that's that's the building ourselves up for failure in some ways of like we should know what we're doing and and how do you how do you embrace that sense of of a perpetual change yeah you know i am ever so grateful for my sport career and i you know encourage anyone to just try to jump into sports in any way you can to get uncomfortable because I always had to, and I know you know this, I always had to have a plan A and I had to have a plan B. And plan C was who the knows what's gonna happen, right? And I've gotta adapt to it. And it taught me that. And that, that I was able to, once I retired and I was in therapy for a little bit, I was able to recognize that I had the ability to sit in my uncomfortableness and know that even if I didn't have a plan, something was going to come forward. I also use meditation. I, I meditate daily. That's another piece for me to be able to really calm myself down. I have a breathing technique that I use when I feel like I'm becoming anxious and or my emotions are over the top, whether they're super happy or they're really sad is um, it's a three times three breathing where I breathe in three seconds. I hold for three seconds. I breathe out for three seconds. I hold for three seconds and I do it three times. And science has proven that it changes the chemical makeup in our brains to shift out of that anxious fight, flight, freeze moment when I'm uncomfortable. Uh, and so I have tools, I have skills. I have these pieces that I've put together um, and I have my community. That's the other piece. 
And, and does that help with the emotional side of it? Because it's, it's so easy to feel like we've failed in a situation. So does the meditation, does the breathing help you to reset the emotional side? Or how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that emotional side that, is, that can be really judging? Yes, it helps me reset the emotional side because often we let our bodies get, take us away, right? We get wound up in the way something feels and it helps me reset, calm down a little bit, but it also helps me become a witness to move back and look at a bigger picture of what's going on. And these are all practices. I mean, nothing is something that I'm just going to pull it out of my pocket and use it if I haven't practiced it. And that's another thing I learned from sports was I need to practice something to be good at it because in times of stress and trauma, I'm not gonna think about it unless it's automatic. And it's only automatic if I practice it. And that's why they call you know, exercises that you do or meditation or breathing or any of that a practice. Yeah, it's, you know, it really does help with the pieces of feeling like I failed. And I don't anymore feel like I fail at things I feel like I'm learning something when it doesn't work out. Like, okay, what am I learning from this? Let's sit back, let's witness, let's write about it. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of writing about it. Write about it, look at it from perspective, think about it. And I also, um, I enjoy distraction. Uh, I enjoy being able to go do something, takes me right out of that moment. I mean, recently during the pandemic, I started playing. I never have played online games. I've never played any kind of game like that. I mean, the only game I ever saw a video game that I participated a little bit was Pong way back in the day. Way back. And I am playing a freaking battling game, a battle game online that I love. And it is way out, like nothing I've ever experienced before. And it's keeps me so focused and I've learned some new skills. It sparked up my brain in, in really interesting ways. And I am using that as, okay, I need to reset. I think I'm gonna play for about 15 minutes. And as soon as I jump in there, I'm out of here. And I finish that in 15 minutes and I can go back to looking at here from a perspective. And it's been really, really helpful. I just, and I, you know, I have a friend that turned me on to it. I went, wow, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, you should check out Pam McGonigal did a TED talk. She was, she is a game, she makes games. And she said that people need to, need to game more, which is one of those things, you know, she opened her TED talk that way. And everybody's been taught, no, no, kids are gaming too much. They shouldn't do this, but it's helping to build a community. Uh -huh. You have your recharge stations, you have a sense of a, a sense of achievement yep. that you don't necessarily get within your everyday life. And it's a really interesting, interesting way of looking at it. And you went right to it, the positive parts of actually being involved in that game and how you can work with other people to be successful and the, the skills that you're learning and you're not necessarily... I mean, it might be a reset, but it might also be something that you're gaining other skills that you would not have gained. And I things that are going to be beneficial. I am gaining other skills. I am starting to use 
both of my hands in ways that I've not used them before, which I find fascinating. I really enjoyed this time with you. Well, thank you very much, Candace, for joining us. It's been it's been wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing. Is there anything, is there any way that people can follow you or follow any of what you're doing? Do you have anything you're looking forward to? Yes, um, I'm on Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my Twitter and Instagram is Candace Cable now. That's pretty easy. Uh, Candace Cable's on Facebook. And yeah, you have to just check me out there, see what I'm up to next. And I want to just say, everybody, stay safe out there, stay helpful, sending you heart love because it's hard times. We are all traumatized right now. So be kind to yourself. <laughs> Exactly. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others. Be kind to the whole community. Well, Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all for joining us. If you didn't get to see the whole thing, you can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook. This will be posted on the One Revolution page. This will also come out as a podcast. And so you can go to the regular, the usual suspects as far as podcasts are concerned, wherever you get your podcast. And you'll be able to see Candace. We will edit it a little bit. Uh, you know, take out, take out all the, all the ums and ahs or whatever, but no, thank you, Candace, for joining us. Thank you for doing what you do and look forward to seeing you when, when our communities reopen and we can actually be able to enjoy time uh, with our friends and family and be able to travel again. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks everybody. Bye.